The scripture uh, today is from Romans 11. And we're going to ask everybody that can to stand for the reading of God's Word. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. May be seated. Uh, as we begin to study these next couple of verses in Romans chapter 11, I have a question I want you to be considering in your minds. The question is, in your Christian life, in your experience with Jesus, of being part of the church, not Doolin's Grove, but the body of Christ, are you experiencing something that those who don't have it would be jealous of? That came out a little confusing in my mind. Is your experience of Christianity something others would be jealous of if they didn't have it? That's what I want you to consider as we study these next couple of verses in Romans chapter 11. Now, I want you to know, too, the plane is descending in this first section of Romans. Romans 1 through 11 is some of the deepest theological work you're going to do in the Bible. And we're in chapter 11 now. So this week, we're mainly going to talk about verses 13 through 16. And then next week, we're going to take a big chunk, verses 17 through 24. This is how I envision it right now, anyway. And then the following week, Paul brings home with some more clarity this whole study of what God intends to do with Israel in verses 25 through 32. And then it's the big finish for this whole big unit of thought in verses 33 through 36. That glorious passage about just how can we even know God's mind? He's so glorious. And then after that, the wheels touch down on the ground. And from chapter 12 on, it gets really, really practical. Chapter 12 is, is the one that starts off in verse 1 with, um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some of you may have heard that verse. Or the next one, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Some of you are familiar with that verse. So we're about to touch down and get really, really practical. And you guys have hung in really well through some really difficult scripture. I'm just really proud of you guys um, and the way you think through it and talk through it. So I just wanted to give you a little glimpse at what's coming, what's ahead. Um, for this morning, I'm just going to let these verses, verses 13 through 16, basically speak for themselves. There's a lot of mystery in these verses. And we're not going to do any speculating 
We're just going to let these verses make their own point. So I want to pray, and then we'll read just these last three verses of what uh, Richard read for us. But first, let's ask God to help us understand. Would you bow with me? Father, we quiet ourselves now to sit back and listen to you talk to us. Lord, I pray that these scriptures would speak for themselves and that we would hear them and let them shape us and mold us and respond rightly. Please help me now to serve your people well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me reread. Let me reread. Romans 11, verses 13 through 16. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So let's just start in verse 13. Uh, you may remember Paul used to be named Saul, and he hated Jesus, and he hated Christians, and he helped kill and persecute Christians. So he was Jewish. He was a Jew that hated Christians. Then God confronted him in the middle of the road and said, Paul or Saul, what are you doing? Jesus is who he says he is. You need to stop. Saul repents, changes, starts going by Paul. Now he's a Jew who is a Christian. So he goes from a Jew who hates Christians to being a Jew who is a Christian. And then God commissions him in Acts chapter 9 to go and take the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles. So Paul's trajectory is Jew who hated Christians, Jew who is a Christian, Jew who's taking Christianity to non-Jews. Okay? So he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, you people who are not Israel, people like us. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. That word magnify means to give weight to it, to Put, your, put heft into it, to give it glory, to make it noticeable. Magnify it means to make it visible. He pours himself out in his ministry to the Gentiles in an extreme way. Why? Did you catch why from the verses? Let's look back. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow... To make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, let's camp out at this whole jealousy idea. Has that struck any of you as odd or strange? Or maybe even a couple weeks ago when we talked about how God wants to make Jewish people jealous? If you remember, not last week when we talked about a biblical view of youth ministry, but the week prior when we covered God's purposes and what he's doing. Israel didn't stumble and fall for nothing. He has purposes in it. It's so that he could open the door to the Gentiles. And he didn't just do that for nothing. He has purpose in saving Gentiles. It's to make the Jewish people jealous. 
why is that okay for God to do? Is it okay for you to provoke jealousy in people? Is it okay when my son has a toy that my daughter really wants and he just laughs in her face and says, look what I have, look how fun this is. I guess it's a car or bar soap. I don't know. Is that okay? You're not sure? No. Why is it okay for God to be up to this uh, ministry of jealousy? Why is it okay for Paul to work really hard in a ministry of jealousy, trying to provoke jealousy. Is, is God being like a, um, an attention-starved wife flirting with other men to try to provoke her husband to jealousy? Is that the picture that we're getting of our God? Is it petty? I mean, we need to think in clear terms about this. What is he talking about trying to make them jealous? Well, remember, I talked about this two weeks ago, what that word jealous means. It means what you think, but it's a little bit more poetic the way the original language is defined. Basically, it means he, to turn up the heat, to, to cause someone to boil over with desire, which is basically what we mean when we say jealousy too. So it's like we Gentiles are the burner. And in all of God's ministry to us, giving us Jesus and the gospel, he's turning up the heat under his original chosen people, the Jewish people, so that they will get hot and boil over with desire for this thing that God is doing in us. So it's, it's not petty. It would be, thinking back to my kids, I use my kids for every illustration because that's what I think about all week. Um, so imagine a scenario, it's not that hard to imagine, but I want to take the kids outside to play. So I get, I bring them together, Elias, Lillian, let's go outside, we're going to play together. And Elias imagines, he says, no, I don't want to go outside, I want to stay inside and draw, which happens. Lillian says, okay, I'll go outside. So imagine me outside with Lillian, me, my father's heart, I'd greatly desire for Elias to come and join us out here. We're having fun. We're making memories. At least that's what I think. And I, I love Elias so much. I, I want him to be out here with us. So when I'm playing with Lily, I just make it loud and I make it big and boisterous. We, we play right outside his window. I'm like picking her up so he can see how much fun we're having. It's awesome out there. Dad of the century out in the yard and he's missing it. Now, I'm not trying to make him jealous to hurt him. I'm trying to make him jealous because I love him desperately. I want him to come and be with us. Desperately, I want him to come and enjoy the blessings that I'm trying to pour out as a dad. That's more what God's up to. He's not trying to make them jealous to rub it in that they're missing out. He's trying to make them jealous because he loves them desperately. He wants desperately for them to come and enjoy what we are enjoying in Christ. So Jesus gave an illustration about this too, which I'm sure is way better than my illustration about playing with my kids in the yard because he's Jesus. And I want to read it to you. And you can find it in your Bibles too because we're going to camp out here a little bit in Luke chapter 15. Famous parable. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. And you might be thinking, didn't he talk about this? Last time and the time before and the time before? Probably, 
because this parable sheds a lot of light on all this theology that we're studying in Romans. So it's famous. You've heard it. Let's read it together. Luke 15, starting at verse 11. It's long, but it's God's word, so it's worth it. I promise you. I'm going to read this whole parable. Luke 15, starting at verse 11. And Jesus said, he's talking to both the, if you look at the beginning of chapter 15, he's talking to both the uh, sinners, the Gentiles, those far away from God, tax collectors and sinners, and he's talking to the Pharisees, the really religious Jewish people. That's his crowd. Sort of like Paul writing to the Romans has two, the two camps. Okay? And he said, Jesus said to them, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Again, I've told you this before, but that's like the youngest, the son saying, Father, I just wish you were dead so I could have my money, my inheritance. Will you give it to me now so I can go on about my business and leave you behind? That's basically what they would have understood in that culture. Okay, so he, the dad, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he came home, totally contrary to Jewish culture. This man ran out to him, which was very undignified. He gives the little speech that he's been practicing in front of the mirror. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, and this is completely unexpected, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, 
These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who, was devou- who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now Jesus told this story to a bunch of sinners and a bunch of religious Jewish people. Now, who do you think was who in the story? Sinners was the younger brother that went out and devoured everything the father gave them with prostitutes and worldliness. The older brother was the religious Jewish people. Now, both sons, at some point in their lives, missed out on the blessings of the father. The sinful ones, the younger son types, because they were out living the worldly life. But the older brother types, cue the music. This is an important point. The older brother types missed it too. They missed it because of how good they were trying to be to earn the father's blessing. And so here Paul says, it's like Paul's at the party. You know, the younger son came home and the father throws him a big party and the older son's like working. Just picture him like outside working. I don't know what they did back then. He's shoveling something. I'm just imagine they did a lot of shoveling back then. And he hears this party. He's, what is going on? And they tell him, your deadbeat brother who is not worthy to be your father's son. He came home and we're celebrating. Come join us. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I've been working forever, and he never killed a fattened calf for me. And it's like Paul in our passage in Romans. It's like he's there at the party. And it's like he's saying, older brother, Jews, come. Come into this party with us. Come be your father's son and celebrate with us. But they're not hearing it, and they're not having it. When Paul says he magnifies his ministry to, to these He's making it loud. He's making the party loud so that the older brother out shoveling will hear it and realize he's missing out. Okay, are you with me? These things aren't easy things. Now, I want to get back to that question I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. Is your experience of the Christian life something that those who don't have it would be jealous of? Why would... Paul's magnified ministry to these people make these people, the religious, the Jewish people, jealous. What do you think? Do you think because his ministry to the Christians um, was a better religious experience, they had better religious traditions? No, that would not have made the Jewish people jealous because they have had that for years. Do you think his magnified ministry to the Gentiles made them jealous because they had a lot better moral code? These people were just a lot nicer, a lot better at the rules. And so he's hoping that the Jewish people would see that and be like, man, I want to be like that. I want to stop watching R-rated movies and tuck my shirt in and be more moral. No, 
they had the rules part down. So it wasn't religion or rules that was going to provoke jealousy in them. It was something else altogether. And he doesn't spell it out here in this passage, but we've been in Romans for a while. Um, so I went back to Romans chapter 1, and this is a homework assignment that's in your house to house discussion starters, too, which are out on the table back there, by the way. Don't everybody go get them right now. You can get them after the service. I went back to Romans 1 1 and just worked my way through and looked for all the things that the Gentiles were enjoying that the Jews without Jesus were missing. Okay? So here's what I found. I found a list of nine things, and there's probably more. But here's some of the things that are happening at the party, the Christianity party. Okay? Number one, justification. See, the Christians are enjoying justification. The Jews without Jesus are not. Justification, if you'll remember, it's that magical, miraculous thing that God does for us in Jesus where he doesn't just forgive our sins. He actually transforms us into innocent people. When Jesus absorbs our sins and that filth and that penalty on the cross— And we allow him to, he justifies us. He doesn't just forgive us. He actually transforms us into innocent people in God's eyes. That is incredible. Now, each of you, think about yourselves. Think about your sins. And we talked about this in Sunday school, and I told them too, you know, I don't know your sins. I know my sins. You know, I know my deep, dark past. I want you to consider yours. You know, in Christianity, you don't receive an opportunity to do better and to earn God's favor. You receive transformation into an innocent person before God. And Paul wants to magnify that and say, look, don't you want to take part in this? Justification, sanctification. You guys didn't know we're going to be talking all these big theology words. Sanctification, that's the process of growing into that new innocent identity. He gives us that too. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit and it starts to work in you. So positionally you're innocent and then practically in your day-to-day living, you start to grow into that innocence. You start to become who you are in Jesus. And the fruit of the Spirit grows in your life, which is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and other things I'm going to forget. They're not experiencing that. They're missing out on that. Redemption, God purchases us, whereas we were once basically worthless because of our sin. He, He gives us value again. Righteousness, he just gives us his righteousness. Makes us right with God. Peace. Go back and imagine that scene when the younger brother comes to the father. Put yourself in his shoes. Have you ever had to go to someone that you have wronged and ask for forgiveness? It's a gut-churning, anxiety-ridden experience. But when the father hugs him, can you imagine the peace that washed over that younger brother, that younger son? 
That's what we have in Jesus. The Father embraces us. And they're missing it. Grace, the fact that our relationship with God is based on how good God is, not how good we are. Hope, newness of life, freedom from law and sin and death and condemnation. See, we have all this. Paul wants to magnify all this so that those who are missing out on it will want it. So, are you experiencing Christianity like that? Are you experiencing a Christianity that is freeing and invigorating, that fills you with peace, that fills you with a tight, close connection with God the Father? Freedom from your guilt, freedom from feeling filthy because of the things you've done or the things done to you. Ability to forgive people. Is that your experience? Something that others would be jealous of? Or is your experiencing something more like the Jewish people without Jesus? Filled with religious practices and rules you're trying to keep but you can't. In a constant sense of, I've blown it again, I've blown it again. Or an exhaustion of just trying to keep up with the routine. I've got to keep up with this Christian thing so God will accept me. Because if you're here, you're missing it. And I'm like, Paul, I don't want you to miss it. I don't want me to miss it. But Paul had hope for these for the Jewish people. In verse 15, he says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that's a huge sentence, but we've covered that and I can't go all back into that again. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So the logic is, as we've been studying, God hardened Israel That's another loaded sentence that I can't go back into, but we've been there. It's on the blog. I know you guys are on the blog every day. God hardened Israel, not so that they would be a rock, but so they'd be a doorknob that he could turn and open up the door to salvation to the Gentiles. So his logic is, if their rejection meant that we all get Jesus, what will their acceptance mean? You know, if you think the party is awesome when the father has the younger son, imagine the party when the the older son comes and finally gives it up, puts down his pitchfork and joins and says, Father, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father embraces him too. And he's got both of his sons right here. And you saw Rodney grab Ashlyn close and kiss her on the head in, in that fatherly love. Can you imagine the celebration of the father bringing in both of his sons? the Gentiles and the Jews, if you think this, what we're enjoying now, is something, you wait until the Jewish people in large part come to Jesus. That's the logic of what he's saying. And you're thinking, wait a minute, are you saying all the Jews are going to become Christians? I don't know what's going to happen. He's so mysterious. But something's going to happen. You know, my understanding is so far he has talked about Israel as if Every Israelite has rejected God. But we know that's not true. There are many Jews that were Christians. So the way I figure it so far as we work through the logic of this passage, 
he's hinting that one day the majority of the Jewish people will say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And when that day comes, it's going to be like life from the dead. Or is it going to be life from the dead? As you read what it says here, and this is where it gets confusing. If you were already confused, you're about to probably pass out. For if their rejection means reconciliation, the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What is he talking about? Is he being literal? Is he saying when the Jewish people in large numbers embrace Jesus as the Christ, that that's when he's going to return and the dead will rise? And it's literally going to mean life from the dead. Is that what he's saying? Or is he being figurative? And he's saying it's going to be like that. It's going to be an experience that's, that's almost as if we're, the whole thing's coming awake from the dead. Well, you think I know? I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out with you guys. But did you notice in the prodigal son's story, twice he said, in verse 24 he said, when he's about to celebrate for the younger son, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then at the very end, he's talking to the older son. and He says, son, you're always with me. What's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your younger brother, representing the Gentiles, was dead and now is alive. So I don't know exactly what he means, but it's going to be awesome. And I think we're going to gain clarity as we move through the rest of the chapter. But either way, it's going to change everything. And it's coming. See, see what I've meant over the last couple of weeks? God is up to big, big things. And we're you know, so focused on our little slice. You know, and rightly so, we have challenges and problems. You guys, I mean, some of us just making it through a day is a miracle. But in the back of your mind, remember, what God is doing in our little slices is connected to huge cosmic things that he's up to in the world. What God is doing in your life has to do with you. It has to do with what he's doing in your family. It has to do with what he's doing in our community. It has to do with what he's doing in our church. It has to do with what he's doing in in the world and all of history and with what he's doing in Israel. And I don't pretend to understand it all. But we are a part of some beautiful master plan. And it's going to be like life coming up from the dead. Or it's going to be literally life coming up from the dead. We'll find out together. So, where are you? Are you where the younger son was with your face down in a pig trough? starving spiritually out in the world, feeding on the disgusting slop of what the world gives you. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, filthy hardcore music. I mean, even like the self-help slop, the, the Oprah-esque slop of, you know, you can be your best you now. You just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this slop. Are you out there trying to get nutrients in the world? If so, Come to the Father like the younger son did. He's not going to condemn you. He's going to embrace you. 
let Jesus clean you up. Uh, maybe you're not out there in the slop. Maybe you're out, you're in the workroom shoveling. You're in an exhausting grind of trying to please God, trying to clean yourself up, trying to do what you're supposed to do, trying to obey all the laws. And then when God doesn't bless you, you respond like the older son. What are you doing? I have worked my whole life for you. You owe me. If that's you, I pray that you're hearing the sounds of the party in the other room. That you can come to the Father too. And that you can just receive all this. All this justification and sanctification and peace and blessing and embrace into the Father's arms. Or maybe you're not out in the slop and you're not in the workroom. Maybe you're in the party. You're in there. You're trusting in Christ. You're following Christ. You're letting him renew you. You're living each day in light of what he's done for you. In that case, magnify that stuff. Let people see it. You know, when Jesus said, we're salt and light, you know, that light that we're meant to shine isn't the light of our superior morality or our religious excellence. It's the light of all this awesome stuff Jesus has done for us. So magnify it. Let it just explode. Let people see it. Maybe they'll be made jealous. Maybe some will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, as always, for your word. It's, it's an adventure every time we open it. You are big and amazing and unexpected and um, so far beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And I just thank, that you, thank you that you've revealed these things to us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to all go to you through Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness. Whether we're the worldly rebellious younger son or the religious self-righteous older son. I pray that everyone in here would be a part of the party that is Christianity. Would experience the grace that you have and are lavishing upon us. And that those on the outside would see it. That they would want it. That they would boil over with desire for you. And would be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.